Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, November 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Wondering what I do with my very next one out of the ER here. Where do I create an isolation space for them? Because my COVID unit is full as well. Rural hospitals reach capacity as the state's coronavirus cases continue to rise. Then, Mississippi's largest historically black university names its next president. Plus, we examine the factors of poverty during the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Rural hospitals in Mississippi are operating at maximum capacity as coronavirus hospitalizations rise across the state. The Department of Health reports COVID-19-related hospital admissions have returned to levels seen during this summer's peak of the pandemic, and confirmed hospitalizations have more than doubled since the beginning of October. The surge is placing a significant strain on not just the largest medical centers, but also small rural hospitals. Dr. Jay Pinkerton is chief of staff at George Regional Health System in Loosedale. As he tells our Kobe Vance, rural hospitals are facing many of the same challenges as the rest of the nation. We're busy. Like, like most of the country, we're seeing an increase in numbers. Uh, and we're a small rural hospital, so typically we'll have 35 uh, patients in the hospital or less at any given time. And with the explosion of, of coronavirus around the country, all areas, rural areas, metropolitan areas, suburban areas, everybody's seeing an increase. I mean, we've had more than a million positive cases in the United States last week. So our county here is no different. We have about 24,000 uh, people in the county, and I think last time I I saw a number on it, we were around 1,200 uh, that were positive positive cases so far, uh, and we're seeing more of them. Our outpatient clinics, our primary care clinics, are testing twice as many people as they did a month ago, and at one point in time, our percent positive tests 
was down below 10%, but we're up around 25% positive now when we do those tests. So there's there's an awful lot of it out there, and it's it's getting worse. And now, like you mentioned earlier, rural hospital, and so y'all have limited capacity. Um, mm-hmm. What what strain does just a few coronavirus patients put on your facility that you know traditional patients wouldn't? Quite quite a bit. Uh, we have our traditional med surge nursing area. We have a labor and delivery area. We have an ICU area. And so knowing that this was coming, uh, because we've been watching it you know, very closely since April, and you saw it kind of spread across areas of the country, we set aside another ICU area to use for the, the corona or COVID-positive patients. Um, and, and that was not uh, such an impossible task for us to do. Uh, the challenge is staffing it. I mean, we, we have an appropriate number of staff for the usual patient volumes, but when you open up an entirely new isolation area, suddenly you need a whole new set of staff. They can't be in two areas at the same time. Uh, and with one of them being an isolation area, they can't move between them. So we're we're having, you know, people work more hours. We're having people work more shifts. We're we're trying to use more of our our PRN or our part time help, uh, but there's a, a definite challenge to to trying to handle the extra volume. Even though it isn't a huge number of patients, it takes up more time in in, uh, in labor from physician time and from nursing time. Everybody in and out of an isolation type unit takes several minutes to get gowned up and and then coming back out dressed out again. What kind of strain does this put on your uh, your doctors and nurses who are having to do this type of care? They get tired. I, I was talking with somebody last week and and they said, you know, what's it like? I said, well, you know, people want to see this go away. Uh, they're they're working more hours. They're working in an environment that is much more difficult to work in. When you put on a, a full set of, of PPE, gown, gloves, hat, boot covers, face mask, face shield, N95 mask, it's not that it's impossible for you to do, but over the course of a long period of time, several hours or 12 hours for a shift, it makes your job much more difficult. It makes it difficult for me to talk to a patient, for them to understand what I'm saying. Normally, you would you would be able to have a conversation with a patient. Well, you're, you're in an isolation room that has air exchangers. You've got an N95 mask on, so you're almost yelling so that they can understand what you're saying. You're, you're phrasing things differently so it's easier to understand. Uh, it, it takes more effort. Everybody's tired. And so, you know, as we see cases go up, uh, it's looking at a very similar rate to what we saw this summer. Um, how are y'all preparing for the next few weeks? Trying to get everything in place we can. Uh, we took a very proactive stance, uh, planning ahead to get enough rooms open in a second isolation area, planning ahead to get extra ventilators if you're going to need them to get medications that are going to be in short supply. Medication like remdesivir in, we've got freezers set up for the vaccines when they get here. We've got the monoclonal antibody available here. We've got uh, convalescent plasma. 
So we're trying to do everything that any big hospital would be able to do. We're trying to do it on a smaller scale here and have it available to all of our patients. What role does your hospital be playing when it comes to helping treat um, the overall patient load here in Mississippi? Because I know in some cases, uh, the biggest hospitals like Medical Center in, in, uh, in Jackson and uh, other just Metro Center or even like DeSoto County uh, hospitals that are bigger than you that can usually take care of a lot of patients, they do get overwhelmed in these situations. Um, do, y'all, do y'all take on some of that extra patient load to try to help with that? Well, it depends. Um, we're getting phone calls uh, from other states even. We've had phone calls from Louisiana this week saying, you know, we, we want to transfer a COVID patient. We don't have room for them here. That six-bed COVID isolation space that I talked about earlier today has six patients in it. So I, I really can't take another COVID patient from another hospital and I'm wondering what I do with my very next one out of the ER here. Where do I create an isolation space for them? Because my COVID unit is full as well. And so it, it's becoming a problem all across the country in terms of being able to transfer patients and uh, get them accepted someplace else. But we all kind of face some of the same things. Uh, You might be able to free up a bed space, but if it's in a different area of the hospital, do you have the nursing staff, uh, the support staff, the ancillary staff to cover it? Because even if I opened up brand new beds at this point in time, if I just built a bigger wing and said, okay, I now have more COVID space, I don't have the available nursing staff to staff that. Uh, if we increase the number of beds. So it's a problem that everybody faces. And if you've got the available space, uh, you help somebody out. And if you don't have the available space, then they keep calling other hospitals. Uh, And hopefully, I mean, from our standpoint, we're the only hospital in a small county, uh, very rural situation. Hopefully we can take care of all of our patients and not have to transfer too many of them. Dr. Jay Pinkerton is Chief of Staff at George Regional Health System. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor. Thank you. Coming up, Mississippi's largest historically black university names its next president. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Jackson State University has a new president after a months-long search process, and it's a face already familiar to the university. Thomas Hudson will continue to serve as president at Jackson State University after serving as acting president since February. The Board of Trustees of the Institutions of Higher Learning made the announcement yesterday. JSU trustee Stephen Cunningham introduced the selection. 
Jackson State University is a very important uh, university for our system and our state. As my alma mater, it holds a special place in my heart. Uh, Jackson State gave me a fantastic foundation as it continues to give to today's students. Uh, last month, the board held virtual informational sessions and launched an online feedback form to hear from the campus and alumni community uh, about permanent leadership for the university. Uh, many expressed a desire to have an alumnus leading the university. There was also strong support for stability and leadership. Many also noted a desire for someone who is student-centered and has demonstrated leadership. Although some wanted a national search, uh, there was overwhelming support uh, for the current leader to continue serving. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to announce that the Board of Trustees has named Thomas K. Hudson as president of Jackson State University. Uh, as a Jackson State University alumnus, I am extremely pleased that we have identified one of our own uh, to serve as president. We have witnessed the great strides he has made over the past nine months we have full confidence that he will continue to demonstrate the great love he has for the university by providing outstanding leadership uh, for the students, faculty, staff, and alumni. The College Board hosted a series of listening sessions with JSU students, faculty, staff, and alumni. IHL Commissioner Alfred Rankins says they did not initiate a nationwide search because a number of constituents had already decided he was their choice for the university. Prior to... Uh, the board initiating a nationwide search. We had a series of listening sessions with various Jackson State constituency groups that comprised of uh, students, faculty, staff, and alumni because the board wanted to hear what the Jackson State family wanted before it made a decision to move forward. Uh, throughout those listening sessions, it was very apparent to the board that there was overwhelming support for Thomas Hudson and the job that he was doing at Jackson State University. So that input that the board received from the Jackson State family was the impetus for the decision that we have here today. The board did not start a national search. The board listened to the input from the Jackson State family and based on that input made the decision to hire Thomas Hudson as the permanent president. Now President Hudson has also served as Chief Operating Officer, Chief Diversity Officer, and Title IX Coordinator for the university. During the announcement, Hudson said his roots in the JSU and Capital City community run deep. Uh, right now we're undergoing our SAC COC reaffirmation. That's a 10-year process. And what's going through that process has shown us is that you know, every time you stop and start over again, it really hurts the university. It's a detriment uh, to our stability. It's a detriment to our long-term health and our long-term growth. Uh, we do need stability at Jackson State University. Uh, what makes me different, uh, again, I, I come to you humbly. Uh, I'm here to make a difference. I am a lifelong Jackson resident. I'm an alumnus. Uh, I've been around the university uh, as long as I've been on this earth. So uh, for me, it's personal. Uh, for me, it's about family. For me, it's about history. It's about legacy. It's something that I'm already very much a part of and something that I won't have to learn. So I certainly i am going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held probably to a higher standard being an alumnus, but I'm ready to take that challenge on. Hudson also says that although he has been serving as acting president for the last 11 months, he's been planning for the future. 
One of the uh, great things when I took on this role, uh, Commissioner Rankin, he made it very clear that even though I was acting, I was to make decisions that were in the long-term best interest of Jackson State University. And that's what I've tried to do uh, really through the duration of my tenure. I will continue to act in that manner. Uh, obviously, you know, things do change. Uh, there is a long-term vision uh, that we have to implement here at Jackson State University. So we'll just continue down that road. We'll continue to do the good work. We'll continue to focus on the issues uh, that move the university forward. And I plan to be a big part of that. When the search to replace former President William Bynum began, alumnus and Dean Emeritus Ivory Phillips voiced the need for someone familiar with Jackson and JSU to lead the university. He tells our Ashley Norwood he felt Hudson would be the board's choice. I was just not surprised. Uh, I began to get the impression that the board is probably going to go with Mr. Hudson. Uh, Basically, number one, because... In the first announcement, when they announced the resignation of the last president, he was introduced as the acting resident interim, and the commissioner took pains to spell out that he was going to act until they had, you know, a permanent person. Then secondly, he also emphasized the fact that Jackson State has always wanted an alumnus as president, and this was an alumnus. So I wasn't really surprised that... Do you think there should have been a national search or that some others should have been considered in the process? Well, as some of the alumni expressed, if there were a national search, it would give him more credibility in, in, in everything. Because if you do a national search and he emerges as the person, then you definitely you know, can say that that's what should have been done. You think about just in the past years and the past few presidents, Jackson State has had some concerns with how IHL has handled um, the search process. And so I wonder if Jackson State may be feeling more comfortable or maybe trusting IHL more so now. But in the circles where I travel, confidence in IHL's leadership and especially in choosing president for the black colleges is very low and I don't think necessarily improved today. Ivory Phillips is a Dean Emeritus of Education at Jackson State University. Coming up, we examine the factors of poverty during the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash car tag. We'll see you on the road. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Data analysis by the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting shows that coronavirus deaths are twice as high per capita in Mississippi's poorest counties. In the most recent installation of the Poverty and the Pandemic series, investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell explores how generational factors have affected the state's poorest areas during the pandemic. Mitchell discusses his findings, starting with the disproportionate death rate of the impoverished. Overall, they're dying at twice the rate, and if you compare it to the counties where, um, you know, the income is 25000 uh, a year or higher, then that's, uh, which is not necessarily the wealthiest county. I mean, it's more than three times, so they're, they're, they're dying at a much greater rate. Is it also because their access to care is limited? What what kind of hospitals and medical intervention is available to people who are sick? Well, for example, I think there are a majority of counties in Mississippi don't have ICU beds, for example. Two-thirds of all rural hospitals in Mississippi are losing money. They're in danger of closing. So that's a lot, and that's a lot of rural hospitals. So that's really the only care that a lot of folks can get are in these rural hospitals. People who are in poverty sometimes may have to travel an hour, hour and a half, sometimes you know close to two hours if they're driving by car, you know, to be able to get um, medical care. Because many don't have health insurance, are they then reluctant to seek? medical care, especially with COVID-19, yes. which can be deadly. Yes, I think that's true in general. When people don't have any kind of health insurance or coverage, there's this very much this reluctance uh, to go get medical care. Or when they get medical care, it's la- they put it off and put it off and put it off. So then they show up in, say, the ER uh, and then that becomes a difficult situation, both for them and the hospital, because your ERs are overloaded. And as we're seeing right now with the pandemic, you know, ICU beds are, you know, there's no room at the end anymore. I mean, they, you know, so what do people do? Um, or even if it's not even COVID related, what if somebody has a stroke or a heart attack or one of those things where they're having to, to say, come to UMC? and get, get medical care, um, you know, it's, it becomes a little more difficult. Besides illness and, and dying, what has the financial impact been on the impoverished because of the coronavirus? You know, it's a, it's a difficult situation for them. For example, let's say they get COVID, they're not able to work, and therefore they don't get paid. Who do you talk to in your report? I talk to a lot of people. Uh, this latest one, I know I talked to Bill Bynum, and this has been an area they've been very interested in with Hope Enterprise and, um, and working in the Delta trying to you know, provide financial services. For example, in some of these poor communities, they don't even have a bank. Like they don't have a place to deposit, you know, things that you and I take for granted, being able to deposit our checks. They, they don't have that. They don't have a bank. So um, it, it makes it difficult. Coming out of the pandemic, and we don't know when that 
might happen, but well into next year we're looking at. Um, and you said that hospitals are in danger of closing the rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. Can that, will yeah. that happen soon? I mean, I guess I'm looking at what, what is the worst case scenario for these people health wise, if this pandemic continues well into 2021? It's early. It's a little early to predict, you know, what's going to happen. But I think in general, obviously this is hurting our, hurting the state economically. Uh, if nothing else. So I, I don't think rural hospitals are going to benefit from this, um, the pandemic in terms of income or things like that. I, but I could be surprised. Uh, I think it's going to, in general, hurt our economy and and think hospitals obviously are part of that. Jerry, where can people read this final installment? It, it's on our website, MississippiCIR.org. It's the first story at the top, and they can read about it, and as well as the other stories we've written about the pandemic, uh, poverty in the pandemic series. Great. Jerry Mitchell is the founder of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The Poverty and the Pandemic is a continuing series from the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting and the Pulitzer Center that captures the stories of people and places hit hardest by the nation's worst pandemic in a century. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.